Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Tom Nelson. We're really glad you're here at the Leewood campus today. Uh, welcome to uh, Christ Community. And again, if you're visiting today, uh, or if you've been around a long time, we're just really glad you're here, okay? It's very sweet to have you here. This week, our nation was really stunned, wasn't it, in the suicide death of actor Robin Williams. I don't know about you, but Robin Williams, uh, I sort of grew up with him. I came of age like some of you in my generation. Uh, he was a genius comic. He had a way of connecting with people. And for some of us, we identified with movies such as Good Morning Vietnam or Mork and Mindy, if you were of that abstraction. Much has been written this week about Robin Williams and uh, about his death. But one of the things that stood out to me was a forensic psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Ablow. And he said this. I thought this was really poignant. He said of Robin Williams, depression robbed him of the belief that he had pages left of his life story that would be great. Now, whether you are here this morning and you are a person of faith or you're not, or you're not sure what you believe, I want to suggest that all of us as human beings want our lives to matter, don't we? That the pages left in our story, our life story, will be great. That's our longing, isn't it? But I want to raise the question for us, is this wishful thinking? Is this emotional sentiment on our part? Or are our hearts pointing to something important? Now, perhaps one of the most famous poems of the 19th century, certainly in America, is also one of the most chilling. It was written by Edgar Allan Poe. And if you are a fan of Poe, you know that The Raven is viewed as perhaps his greatest poem. It's a chilling poem, actually. And the backdrop of the poem, The Raven, has the picture of this melancholy poet inside his room, and a black raven knocks on the door. But the poem really touches on Poe's understanding of life and the meaninglessness of life. And the dark themes are repeated through this poem as it's cold and unfeeling, and the end is the cold end of rigor mortis, of meaninglessness. And Poe repeats, if you know this poem over and over again in his refrain, his chilling conclusion of life and death with these words, nothing more, nothing more, nothing more, never more, never more. Is Edgar Allan Poe right about life? Is he onto something? Do our lives really matter? That's an important question for all of us, young and old. As Christians, we seek to answer those deep questions of our hearts through the writings of the Holy Scriptures, and we often look back to our origins, that we believe we were created by a loving God in His image, that we are not just accidental atoms marching through a meaninglessness of space, time and chance, guiding us. And while we believe our origin matters in answering these very important questions of the human heart and mind, We also need to grasp today, friends, that our understanding of our destiny matters too in that question. For if the end of our story doesn't matter, then ultimately, ultimately, nothing matters. Now, whether our lives really matter is answered not just in where our story begins, but where our story ends. Now, I don't know about you, but I love movies, I love books, and maybe I'm kind of weird. If you've been around a while, you know I'm a little eccentric and weird, so just get used to it. 
I'm one of those guys, and I know it's going to shock some of you who love to kind of know a little about how the movie goes. You know, I'll ask my friends, is it a sad ending? Give me a little bit, give me a little bit. I want to know the end. Some of you, that's just unthinkable, right? It's like the immortal sin. Or a book, if I read a novel, I often peek through it a little bit first. Anybody here like that? I want to see kind of how the ending is. And if you think I'm weird and eccentric, I'm not alone. Because Jesus' disciples had a curiosity about the end of the story too. And the text we are going to look at this morning, their curiosity peaks, and they pop the big question. They, they want a sneak peek from Master Jesus, from brilliant Jesus, of how the big story ends. Not only in their life, but they know that how the big story of human history ends connects to the question, does our life really matter? So this opportune moment we find ourselves in, Jesus answers them. And he gives us a life-changing truth that matters. And what we're going to see in this text is Jesus says, because the end matters, your life and my life matter too. You brought a Bible, turn with me if you haven't already to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. We are going to probe this beautiful, cohesive message, response that Jesus gives his disciples. Now, Jesus is addressing three questions in this uh, text. First of all, he's addressing the question, why the end matters anyway, and then what the end looks like, and how does this end matter and how we live now? So this is the, the structure of our conversation this morning. We want to look at why does the end matter, what will the end be like, and how does the end shape how we live now? So that's the flow of this text in our thinking. First, why does the end matter? Now, we need to see that Matthew 24 and 25 is a cohesive whole. We don't pluck something in the middle and not see the seamlessness of the fabric of this literary beauty. From the beginning of 24 to the end of 25, it is a continual thread of conversation tied with logic, arranged with literary beauty, as you would imagine from brilliant Jesus. As we begin this response to his disciples' big questions about the big end, We start with chapter 24, verse 3. If you have your Bible open, this is where we begin in the conversation. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, Matthew tells us, the disciples came to him privately and they say, tell us, notice, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now again, maybe I'm a little uh, crazy, but what I love most is to imagine here, not just what Jesus says, but what he doesn't say. I mean, Jesus doesn't look at his disciples and look at them and say, now that was a stupid question. I love that about Jesus. Because for Jesus, there are no stupid questions in that sense. And kids, if you're back at school, students, you know, just remind your professors or teachers of that, okay? Questions are a good thing. Jesus liked those things. And he, he doesn't demean them at all. He, he affirms the foundation of their question, their curiosity about the end. Now, notice also, Jesus does not focus, unlike often his kooky followers, some of us are kind of kooky that way, right? He doesn't obsess about the timetable of the end. He doesn't focus on the when of the end. He focuses on the what of the end. And notice the text says, he says very clearly, Jesus says, the end will come, the end will come. And he helps us understand the big end by this little phrase translated in English, the end of the age. Actually, it's one Greek word in the original language that is deeply tied to the whole story narrative of the Bible. It's the picture of the ultimate end when the time of 
human history, the curtain will be drawn back and that God, the God of justice and sovereignty, will settle the score of sin and justice will be dispensed. It's deeply connected way back to Genesis 3 in the story, the beginning of the story, when sin and death entered the world as humans were caught up in this grand cosmic conspiracy. So Jesus connects the whole thread of the story with this very important word. And what he he wants us to understand and wants his disciples to understand is this. The Christian story, which this word points to, is a coherent and compelling story. And like all good stories, it has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. And the end of the age, he says, the end of the story really matters because justice and judgment matter to God. He is the God of love and justice, and he will set all things right at the end of time. Now, this is not a new idea in the scriptures. Perhaps one of the wisest people that ever lived, his name is Solomon. He's known as the wise king. If you've read the Bible or know the Old Testament, you know he was a pretty wise guy. Not a wise guy, but a wise guy, you know. (laughs) And he tells in his wonderful book, why life matters? Because the question is, does life matter? That's his, he's probing that question we all ask. Does it make a difference? Is there any meaning to life? And he ends his book, Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 and 40, 14. He ends it with the bottom line. And the bottom line is this. The idea is that the end has consequence, then our life has consequence. That's his logic. And he concludes with this. If you love bottom lines, this is the bottom line of the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, the end of the matter, when all has been heard, is fear or revere God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of humankind. Now notice, Solomon says, for God, this is his last word, for God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. See, the end matters because we live in a moral universe where you and I matter and the choices we make matter. Jesus knew this. He designed it this way. And he knew that the end mattered. It mattered a lot. So he focuses on what the end will look like. And this is the next question we want to probe. What will the end be like? This is the main focus of Jesus' response. And what we notice in chapter 24 after this picture of this intense abnormalcy of the world and normalcy brought together, there is great turmoil as the end approaches. But his focus is answering the question, what will the end be like? Not in turmoil, but the end will be like a courtroom. That's his idea. Now, we often miss this. I want you to look at verse 31 of chapter 24, or chapter 25. Now, notice he says, when the Son of Man comes, Son of Man is a, is a messianic uh, phrase of Jesus, who he is as the king, comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will notice what the text says, He will sit on his glorious throne. Now, we often miss this because of our cultural location and language and distance. Because in our sort of modern era, uh, we don't have a lot of kings. They certainly don't have a lot of authority, absolute authority. We have judges and democracy and, and the rule of law and so forth. But in Jesus' time and the framing, that's not the case. The picture here is a judge who has ultimate rule and authority. Why we know this is a judgment scene is because the Greek word sit down has a sense of the judge seated to make a judgment. So it's a judge courtroom scene. We must not miss this or we miss the flow of the text. 
Now, if you've been to court lately, I hope you've not been hauled to court, maybe a witness in court, but if you've been to court lately, you know that when the judge here, she walks into the courtroom, that people rise. And when they sit down on the bench, things get serious. The authority begins to rest when they sit, and that's the picture here. Several years ago, when our children were young, we took them on a Washington, D.C. trip. You know, you got to do that. You, know, you go to Disney World and Washington, D.C. That's two things you got to do as an American. Um, and uh, we just really had a great time going to Washington, D.C. And one of the places our family stopped again, was the United States Supreme Judicial Court. Amazing. And if you walk through there, it's just the halls just echo history and the importance of those decisions. Because this is the final court of appeal in our nation's laws. Here, the final verdict is laid down with the gavel. And this is the picture we have, not just on a national scale, but a cosmic scale in Matthew 25. Jesus is saying when he returns as king, court's in session. It's the ultimate supreme court whose verdict is final and there's no appeal. So it's very serious. Now, beginning in verse 32 all the way through 45 of chapter 25, What we have here, again, in a judicial way, is presenting of evidence to the judge. Notice the nations are gathered around the throne, and it's a time of judgment. Jesus describes the final judgment of people having two diverse outcomes. He describes the sheep and the goats. Now, for us, you know, most of us who don't live in an agrarian world, I don't know the last time I've seen a sheep and a goat in my backyard. Um, But it's kind of foreign to us. But the idea was in the first century that that sheep were more desirable than goats, but they were both part of the farm. Uh, But they were very different. Everybody knew what a sheep was and what a goat was. There was no confusion. Recently, someone sent me, I don't know what we do without YouTube, right? I mean, how did we survive without YouTube videos? I don't know that. But someone sent me a YouTube video. It was fascinating about these people who have crossed goats and sheep. You know what they're called? Some of you are really smart. They're called geeps and shoats. I don't know why. Never seen one of this, but there's no geeps and shoats in this text, okay? The idea is completely opposite or separate. Two different kinds of people, two different destinies is what Jesus says. Now notice the sheep, you know, pretty good outcome here, right? A great future awaits them. He describes the sheep as loving others, the vulnerable. And let's make sure we understand what's going on here. It's not saying that caring for the poor, the vulnerable merit a good judgment. But what we see here is grace, not merit, the grace of the king, that these sheep have accepted. The behavior of these sheep reflect the change of their heart by grace, and it reflects the condition of their heart. They loved what Jesus loved, and they were loyal to the king. Dr. Don Carson, a scholar in the New Testament, says this. He says, the ready person's life, the sheep, is characterized by selfless service to others. And that's the picture here. Now notice the contrast. It's quite grating. It's a chilling verdict for the goats. The sentence awaited them, and you'll notice, is a place that was prepared for the worst of the worst. And Jesus is very specific here. The ones who started the cosmic rebellion against God after all. The devil and his fallen comrades. So clearly the rightness of the grave judgment here by the righteous judge is supported by the evidence. Chilling description of their lack of love, their disordered loves, their disloyalty to the king, their rejection of the king. And Jesus ends 
looking at the evidence with his final verdict. The gavel comes down. Look at me at verse 46. And he says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I don't know how you're processing this message, this text. We may not like how Jesus ends the story here. But the contrasting of two destinies of people is very clear in Jesus' mind. We must must not cloud it or muddy it. Jesus reminds us that each of our individual stories and the story of human history as a whole takes place not in the end in a lofty playground, but in a sobering courtroom. That's his picture. For some of us who have been a part of Christ's community the last year, that we're not newer, we know that we've gone through the book of Hebrews, this New Testament book, and the writer of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews 9.27. He says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Now, this summer at Christ's Community, we have been examining our doctrinal statement. We have said all the way through the summer a very important proposition, and that is that being Christianly and being a Christian is not only right behavior, it is right belief. So what do we at Christ's Community believe about the end? Now, we have in our doctrinal statement, our last statement, our Article 10 is this, and I want to read it. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Now, for some here today, these words, Jesus' words about the end, our doctrinal statement about the end, I know may be very hard for you to swallow. It is a hard doctrine. I understand that. First glance, reconciling a loving God and a judging God may seem to be intellectually and emotionally insurmountable and untenable. Perhaps that's why we often joke about these things. Sometimes it's for comic relief in our tensions. Not long ago, there was a GQ article that I had to chuckle at, and the article was on remodeling hell. I thought it was quite humorous, and I want to share just a little bit of it with you for a lighter tone for just a moment. The title of the article in GQ is called, Hello to the New Hell completely with the following amenities. There were several, but I'll give you my top five, okay? The first amenity of this new hell remodeled is a broken iPhone charger. That's good. Second, if you're a football fan, all football games in this hell are shown are Cleveland Browns against the Cleveland Browns. Hope you're not from (laughs) Cleveland. My daughter lives there. Third is mandatory evening readings of Yahoo comments on your computer. How about that? That's a good one. And if you're a Harvard grad today, they picked on Harvard. Okay, I like Harvard grads. The fourth amenity of this new remodeled hell is Harvard Harvard graduates constantly angling for a way to bring the conversation back to their time at Harvard. (laughs) And I've heard from many of you, some of you from this, I have not experienced this personally, but you know this has to be an amenity in hell. 24-hour-a-day passing of a child-sized kidney stone that never ends. 
Mark Twain got in on the humorous bandwagon about hell, about divine judgment. This is what Mark Twain said. You know, he was so humorous. He said, if I prefer heaven for the climate, but hell for the company. Uh, don't know about that one. Well, divine judgment is a hard doctrine. It can be the brunt of jokes. But let me suggest something for your thinking, wherever you stand on this. Understanding God's final judgment over sin and injustice is absolutely essential if life matters. If we are to make any sense of life in its brokenness and of the Christian story itself, final justice matters. And to dismiss the end of the Christian story is to render the entire story, beginning, middle, and end, as meaningless and incoherent. This week in St. Louis area, we heard all across our nation, we saw the tremendous protest around the shooting of an unarmed teenager, Michael Brown, by the police. Now, we don't know all, again, that occurred in this tragedy, but we do know that on display this whole week, across our nation, there's something inside us that screams for truth to be revealed for truth to win, for wrongs to be made right, and for someone to ultimately settle the score. But why do we care? Why do we care so much if human life doesn't matter, friends, and if the end doesn't matter at all, why do we care? Whether the wrong is the killing of an unarmed teenager, the slaughter of Christians in Iraq, the sexual abuse of a precious child, Hitler's Holocaust of the Jews, the killing fields of Cambodia, the Rwanda genocide, we could go on and on. We long for things to be made right, don't we? And we do in our everyday lives, on a lesser scale, but a real one. When we get students, when you get that lower grade from your teacher or professor than you deserve, you are ticked off. When you are wrongly terminated by an employer, you feel the grating evil of injustice. And even your soccer team on that final big game, when the ref makes the bad call, you long for wrongs to be made right and for someone to finally settle the score. Perhaps that's why instant replay is so compelling. See, for God to be truly loving, he must also ensure justice. And he must one day ultimately settle the score. Russian writer Dostoevsky said this so well. He said, if God is dead, everything is permissible. Can I add to his brilliance and hitchhike on it? Let me just say this. If God is dead, nothing ultimately matters. And if God is not a God of justice, if he's not a God of judgment, that everything that has been said is said, everything that has been done and is being done and will be done or evil of any kind is of absolutely no consequence. But Jesus says, the end matters and your life matters. Your life has consequence, mine does. The end has consequence. And final judgment is the exclamation point of that reality. It's a necessity. God is not indifferent toward good and evil. It means that human actions and consequences and your conscience and mine are signposts of ultimate accountability before a holy, righteous God. 
that we can never escape. Jesus, the perfect judge, will settle the score one day perfectly. The old professor Mirzlav Balf says this so well. He says this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy to be worshipped. People often ask the question, and it's sincere, how can a loving God send people to hell? But let me probe that for just a moment. Because that question portrays a faulty idea. And that is that a loving God somehow and a God of justice are contradictory rather than complementary. Oxford C.S. Lewis, the great Brit and writer and Christian, in his wonderful book, The Great Divorce, which if you haven't read, I encourage you. It's a brilliant allegory about this. He says this, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God are those whom God in the end says, thy will be done. Lewis writes, all that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will miss it. Before we are quick to dismiss the reality of an eternal destiny separated from a holy God, which Jesus clearly teaches here in this text, let's remember the good news he brings. John captures his words so well in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And don't miss the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, at the foot of the cross, God's perfect love and his perfect righteous justice embrace. Because the end matters. Your life matters. We often hear from the writings of Stephen Covey, that we must begin with the end in mind, and that's good wisdom. But Jesus gives us even greater wisdom, that you and I must live with the end in mind this week. So how do we live now? Notice where Jesus focuses in these two chapters. Remember, this is a seamless whole, a fabric of wholeness. Jesus tells two stories that give two ideas of how you and I are to live now. Two themes. One is we are to wait well and to work well. Wait well and work well. The first story is of a wedding. And the bridegroom is, it's the runaway bridegroom, not the runaway bride. The bridegroom leaves, doesn't come back for a long time, he's delayed. The point is, the wedding party gets lazy and somebody thinks he's not coming back and loses expectancy. Bridegroom here is Jesus, and the church is his bride. And Jesus says, my followers must wait well. We must have hopeful expectancy in our lives. But that's a challenge, isn't it? The longer Jesus tarries, sometimes it's hard for us. The world's a mess. Our lives are a mess. We're brokenness. We're broken. We feel the hopelessness of our times, don't we? And it's too easy for us at times to become cynical, to put our heads in the sand. Kind of a cynical, whatever, fatalistic idea. But the Christian faith calls us to put our eyes on Jesus who created us, who redeemed us, who will one day return for us. My bride Liz has this small little frame plaque on our walls that I see in our home, and it's such a good reminder. It simply has two words, perhaps today, question mark. I don't know when the end 
will be ultimately, when the final curtain will be drawn. I don't know that. But I do know this. Logic tells me that Jesus' return and the end of human history is closer than it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus uttered these words. One of the wonderful gifts that nourish our hopeful expectancy is to be the church, to gather every Sunday and to remember Jesus coming back. And often when we gather around the Eucharist, the Holy Communion table, we say what Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. Notice the second story. Second story, Jesus gives us called the parable of the talents. It's a story. It's not accidental, incidental that he embeds it in our work life, everyday life. The story Jesus gives us of how do we live well now in light of the end is centered around three, literally three portfolio managers, investment managers. If you're in finance, this is your deal. It's about managing other people's money. That's what he says. You remember the story, if you've read it, and I encourage you to read it this week. This wonderful story, the guy who owns all this money and resources, he entrusted three different portfolio managers who are to invest his resources and to get a good return and to do good work. When he comes back, he's delayed for a while. He comes back. Two of the guys have really been good workers and they've been faithful. They've invested this money. They've made a good return for their owner. But one guy has been lazy and has not worked hard. The consequences are gripping. The two who do well, who work well, who are diligent in their vocational work receive the commendation of the master. The guy who wasn't receives the severest reprimand. Why does Jesus tell us this story here? Because faithful stewardship is how we are to live. With the end in mind, we live now as faithful stewards of everything you and I have, everything that we are, everything that we do is a stewardship before God in which we will give an account one day. We are to exhibit faithfulness in that. And notice the emphasis Jesus places on everyday work, what we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And notice the stunning implications. Do you see what the text says? That our diligence on the job, students, your diligence at school, at home throughout the week, is directly connected to the work we will do one day in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. Heaven, I don't know how you perceive it, is more than just sitting on a cloud or listening to your music or I don't know what you think about it. Jesus reminds us here, It is to begin to live the life we were originally created to live. Sinless life with stunning beauty of community in the new heavens and earth in perfect fellowship with God, cultivating and protecting the new garden of the city of Jerusalem for all eternity. What you do this week matters. How do we live wisely in light of the end? We work well now in our vocational callings, whatever they may be. Paul picks this up. Rabbi Paul picks this up as the Apostle Paul. He writes to the Thessalonian Christians. The Thessalonian Christians had this idea, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I'm just going to move to the country, eat a lot of peaches, and just check out of life. Jesus is coming back. Kind of a kooky fringe bunch. Paul takes them to task when he writes to them. He says, don't check out of life. Get down into life. Get after it. In chapter 4, verse 11, He tells them to work well now. Notice what he says. He says, make it your ambition. Make it your focus of energy to live a quiet life. That is, to mind your own business, to do the normal things every day for the glory of God. 
to live a normal, responsible life. That's what the text is saying. And notice how he ends it, to work with your hands. Again, this is a craftsman kind of culture. Instead of checking out in life, waiting for the end to come, they were to get on with life, knowing that Jesus would return and hold them to account of how they lived their life for the glory of good and the common good every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So how should we live in light of the end? This week, students, Jesus wants you to study diligently in your callings. He wants you to take serious your educational development so that your mind can be used to glorify him and seek the common good of others. Stay-at-home spouses. Jesus wants you to diligently run your home and raise your children well for the glory of God. Employees. Jesus wants you to work hard at your job this week. To do good work well done for the glory of God. Professionals. Jesus wants you to serve your clients or your patients really well this week. Business owners and executives, Jesus wants you to lead and manage your companies well this week. Remembering the bottom line of stewardship of nurturing and cultivating profits, people and the planet we are on. And if you are in a retirement kind of context, Jesus wants you to continue to make a contribution to the common good. Lastly, there's a gospel urgency here that we cannot ignore. That is... Jesus encourages us to evaluate our life. When the curtain of time is drawn in your life and mine, will you be a sheep or a goat? That's a really important question for all of us to ponder this morning. Have you embraced the king? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I love how Paul says, it is the kindness of our precious Savior that leads us to repentance. Have you experienced his kindness, his transforming kindness? He died for you. He rose from the dead. He will return. He loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. Do you know Christ this morning? It's nothing you can earn. It's a gift Jesus gives you. He he paid it all. He earned it for you on the cross. Have you received it? If you're a Christian here this morning, are you living every day with a gospel urgency to share this good news with others? The world has been in great fear of the Ebola virus marching across our globe. It's a horrific thing. There are no cures for it. Can you imagine if you had a cure and you, for this horrible virus and you didn't bring it out and share it with the world? How immoral that would be. How unthinkable that would be. But if you are a follower of Jesus and you know the gospel and you live the gospel, to not share that gospel with those who come into your life every day is really the unthinkable response of disobedience. Because the greatest virus the human heart and mind and body has ever seen is the virus of sin. And Jesus has brought the cure. And the good news of the gospel is the cure. Are you sharing it with others? Will they experience the loving Savior you experience who longs to give true meaning to your life. Those at school, work, in your neighborhood this week. This text reminds us 
the ending of the story really matters. And because of that, your life matters. So how will your story end? In an ark long ago, a man named Noah sent out a raven to see if the judgment of God on earth had ended. But the raven did not return. But then Noah sent out a dove. And it was the dove. Not the despairing raven that had the last word. It was the dove that brought hope of a new day and a grand rescue of the world God loves so much. So was Edgar Allan Poe right? Is it the raven of nothing more, nothing more, never more? Or is it the dove of forevermore, forevermore? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speak into our lives with both your tender truth and your tender grace. Lord Jesus, you envisioned the story as creator. You entered the story as redeemer. And you will return one day as King Jesus and end the story for your glory and praise. You are the King. Amen.